the basis of all Indian philosophy, particularly the teaching of those books called the Upanishads, which are really the distilled essence of Hindu thought. The basis is called the self. And this word in Sanskrit is Atman, and that means self in the vastest possible sense and the most inclusive sense of the word. It means yourself, and it means also self as such, existence as such, the totality of all being. And, of course, this is something that one cannot talk about in the sense of talking about it logically. You can talk about it. A poet can talk about anything, and the Upanishads are very largely poetry. Of course, everything in the world, knives and forks, tables and chairs, trees and stones, are indescribable. Korzybski referred to the physical world as the unspeakable world which was really rather a funny name, because it has two edges. It's, of course, something you can't say anything about, that is to say, it is ineffable, but it's unspeakable also in the sense of the word meaning something taboo. And we shall see, as we go on, wherein that taboo consists. But from the standpoint of logic, we can't say anything about everything. Because in order to say something about something, and state it logically, you have to be able to put it in a class. Now, classes are intellectual boxes. Is it in, when you play games like animal, vegetable, and mineral, you've got there three boxes. And when you come to think of it, you don't know any one without another. Because in order to have a box, there must be what's inside the box and what's outside the box. And then, by this method of contrast, we can make a logical discussion about things. All words, therefore, are labels on intellectual pigeonholes. But then, when you come to what fundamentally is, then you're without a box, and you can't talk logically. Of course, you can distinguish is from is not but only in a very limited way, as I can say, I have a pen in my left hand, I do not have a pen in my right hand. And from this we abstract the idea of to be and not to be, is and isn't. But when we consider being with a capital B, this includes not only such is's as celestial bodies, but also such isn'ts as the space that encompasses them. And these two go together, as we shall see in more detail as the time goes on. But now, a perfectly logical person would therefore say that the notion of the self, the Atman, as the fundamental reality in which everything else exists, is meaningless. And of course, from a logical point of view, it is. But at the same time, just because something cannot be put into a logical category does not indicate that it isn't real. The self, you see, bears somewhat the same relationship to the world as the diaphragm of the speaker in this radio 
bears to the music you've just been hearing. None of the music was about the diaphragm, and nobody said anything about there being a diaphragm. The diaphragm as such didn't come into the picture, and yet it was everything in the picture. All those different noises were vibrations of this thin film of metal. So also with your eardrum, so also with the apparatus of your eyes. So one might ask then, just as you say, well, what is it on? What is the music on? Is it on tape? Is it on a speaker? Is it on a drum? Whatever the variations may be. We can ask the question, what are you all on? What is all this on? And the Hindus answer, it's on the self. Like we say, this one's on me. <laughs> it isn't that there's only one self in the sense that uh, is taught in a philosophy called solipsism. Solipsism is the idea that you are the only person who exists and everybody else is your dream. Nobody can prove that this isn't so, except I'd like to see a congress of solipsists arguing as to which one of them is really there. It isn't that, it's more complex than that. It's saying that the self in each one of you is really at root one. Just in the same way that uh, you have all over your body millions of nerve ends, each one of those nerve ends is, as it were, a little eye, because all the senses are fundamentally one sense. They are various forms of touch. And the most delicate of the forms of touch is, of course, the human eye. Then the ear, and so on down the list of the senses. Now imagine then every little nerve end is a little eye. And it gets its impression of the world, but it sends it all back into the central brain. Well, in a somewhat similar way, every person, every animal, every what the Hindus call sentient being, and even rocks are regarded as sentient beings in a very, very primitive form, right down to the lowest. So all those forms that we see may be looked upon as the eyes that look out of one central self. Only, of course, in the body, in the human body, we can see the connections between the nerve ends and the brain. It's much more difficult to see the connection between one individual and another. If they're married, that's a little bit closer. But just all us human beings rattling around, we're not even rooted to the ground like trees. And therefore it's very easy for us to form the impression that I am only what is inside my bag of skin. And that myself is a different self from yourself. And we're all therefore fundamentally disconnected. And so your apparent disconnection, the fact that you are not tied to other people with umbilical cords or some kind of uh, wiring that gives you one mind. Nevertheless, we do have one mind in the sense that, uh, for example, all of us turn out to be approximately the same shape. 
two eyes, two nostrils, a mouth, two hands, two legs, and so on. A haiku poem, Japanese haiku, says a hundred goods from the mind of one vine. And so it is with people. And so it is with everything in the world. That's just from a purely physical point of view. But going yet deeper, we find that it's somehow a necessity of thought that there be some sort of a something which is the common ground of all these universes, all these galaxies. And that ground is the self, as Hindus understand it, the Atman. Now that's quite a startling point of view. Because what it's saying is, you see, that you are basically the works. Now, the Hindus do say that the self, the great self, is consciousness. But of course that does not mean consciousness in the sense of our ordinary everyday consciousness. Ordinary everyday consciousness is indeed a form of this kind of consciousness, shall we say a manifestation of it. But then there's also consciousness which doesn't notice, but nevertheless is highly responsive. The way your heart beats, the way you breathe, the way you grow your hair, you're doing it, but you don't know how it's done. So, therefore, just in the same way that conscious attention is not aware of all the other operations of the body, so, in just that way, we are not aware of our connection, indeed our identity, with the fundamental self. When the leaves die and fall off the trees or the fruit drops, next year more leaves, more fruit. So in the same way, when you and I die, more babies later. If the whole human race dies, you bet your life. There are all kinds of things that feel that they're human, scattered throughout the multiplicity of galaxies, because this universe is a peopling universe, just as an apple tree apples. But because we are unconscious of the intervals, we are not aware of the self with our conscious attention when conscious attention isn't operating. But still, just as you don't notice what your pineal gland, say, is doing at the moment, so in the same way you don't notice the connections which tie us all together, not only here and now, but forever and ever and ever and ever. The difficulty and the basic reason why we don't notice the self is that the self doesn't need to look at itself. A knife doesn't need to cut itself. Fire doesn't need to burn itself. Water doesn't need to quench itself. And a light doesn't need to shine on itself. 
so this is the fundamental problem of having some sort of awareness of the self. Nevertheless, it is the whole contention of Indian philosophy, especially what we call Vedanta, that it is possible in a certain way to become aware of oneself in this deepest sense, to know that you are the totality. And this experience is the real substance of Indian philosophy as a whole, both Hindu and Buddhist. It is called moksha, which roughly means liberation. Liberation from the hallucination that you are just poor little me. To wake up from that kind of hypnosis and discover that you are simply something, your organism, your physical body, your conscious attention, which is your ego, that you are something being done by this vast, indescribable self, which is out of time, which has no beginning, no end, it neither continues nor discontinues. It's beyond all categorization whatsoever. And so the Upanishads say, all we can say of it positively is the negative. Neti, neti, it is not this, it is not that. Anything, therefore, you can formulate, imagine, picture, will not be the self. So when you are trying to know the self, you have to get rid of every idea in your head. It doesn't mean, as some people seem to think, that you have to get rid of every sense impression. It isn't as if you had to go into a catatonic state of total absorption. Of course, that can be done. But the full moksha, the full liberation, is when you come back out of absorption and see this everyday world just as it looks now, but see as clearly as clearly can be that it is all the self. You can become aware of this tremendous interconnectedness of everything. And that is what somebody who is moksha, who is liberated, sees. He sees, shall we say, that everything goes together. And that is, in a way, what we mean by relativity. Because relativity means relatedness. Just as fronts go with backs and tops with bottoms, insides with outsides, solids with spaces, so everything that there is goes together. And it makes no difference whether it lasts a long time or whether it lasts a short time. A galaxy goes together with all the universe just as much as a mosquito, which has a very short life. From the standpoint of the self, time is completely relative. You can have, if you scale it down, 
as much time between two of those very rapid drum beats as you can in eons and eons and eons. It's all a question of point of view, or to use a scientific expression, level of magnification. Change your magnification and you see molecules. And we know by other methods of observation that it can get smaller and smaller and smaller and that the spaces between these minute units are so vast that they're comparable to the distances between the sun and the planets in scale. So also with time. So in this sense, there could be vast, vast universes full of empires and battleships and palaces and brothels and restaurants and orchestras in the tip of your fingernail. And on the other hand, we could be all going on in the tip of somebody else's fingernail. It's very important to understand not only the relativity of size and of time, but also of what there is. Now, as you know, the human senses respond only to a very small band of the known spectrum of vibrations. We know through instruments of quite a vast spectrum but we, as I say, with our senses, see only a little of it. If our senses were in some way altered, we would see a rather different-looking world. We can do this, of course. We can put on special lenses uh, to enable us to see heat. And then we see all the heat radiations coming out of people. And uh, we say, well, I never noticed that about you before. But so in the same way, you see, there are infinitely many possibilities of vibration and of organs sensitive to those vibrations so that there could be worlds within worlds within worlds, spaces within spaces, just like the many, many wavelengths of radio and television going on forever and ever in all directions. The possibilities are infinite. But having senses and noticing is a selective process. It picks out only certain ones, just as when you play the piano. You don't take both arms and slam down all keys at once. You select. And so perception is a kind of piano playing. It is picking out certain things as significant, that is to say, as constituting patterns. And the whole universe seems to be a process of playing with different patterns. But whatever it does, whatever it plays, in whatever dimension, on whatever scale of time or space, it's all on the self. The self is also known in Sanskrit as Brahman. This is a neuter word. Brahman is from the root BRH, br, which means to expand, to grow. 
It isn't quite clear exactly why this word was chosen. Sometimes there's a still better word for uh, the self, which I like, is the word tat. Almost like tit for tat. Tat means that. We get our word that from the Sanskrit tat. And so when the baby comes into being, first of all, the first thing it says is da. Da. Uh, the baby is pointing. Da, da, da. And it's saying that. Look, isn't that marvelous? That, you see? So that is the witch than which there is no witcher. And so you get the formula in this Brihadaranyaka uh, Upanishad. Tat Tvam Asi, which means Tat, that, Tuam, Latin, you know, uh, you, Asi, ah, you are that, or that thou art, that art thou. So, in this sense, then, every self is modeled on and is an expression of the one self because you all feel individually that you're the center of the world and everything else is seen in circles circling out, sphering out from where you are and that's as it were the called the microcosm the little cosmos but then in the same way the macrocosm has a central self, although this is not central in the way we talk about centers in space. Do you see that? Uh, a center of a circle is in the middle of the circle and the circumference is away from it. But you could say, you could use a phrase that the Christian theologians have used of God, that circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. You could speak of Brahman that way. It isn't in the middle of the universe, spatially speaking. You might ask the question, where is the universe? Ever thought of that one? Where is it? Well, you can't say where because all, everywhere has to be in relation to something. There would have to be another universe to say where this one is. But then since those two together would constitute the universe, uh, we wouldn't still be able to say where it was. It isn't anywhere. And so in that sense, the center isn't anywhere in space, locally. And furthermore, the kind of space we are dealing with is only one possible kind of space. It's the kind of space our physical organisms are attuned to. We are, you see, like the radio. We pick up what wavelength we're on. So then, when inquirers used to come to that great modern Hindu saint, Sri Ramana Maharshi, and they'd ask him all sorts of silly questions, like, who was I in my last incarnation? What will I be in my next one? He would always reply, who is asking the question? Who are you? Find out, because that's the thing you need to know. As it were, dig down into the depths of your being and say, what is this? 
that I call I? That's one of the very fascinating questions. It's also, it teases us out of thought to think about death in the sense of going to sleep and never waking up. Imagine that. And you find you can't. And yet, it's, it's, a, it's a thought that although you can't get to grips with it, it remains fascinating. Also the question, how is it suddenly that you awakened into this world? Where were you before? In Zen Buddhism, they have the meditation problem, the koan. Before your father and mother conceived you, what is your original nature? And that's the same sort of weird question as what it would be like to go to sleep and never wake up. What was it like to wake up having not previously gone to sleep? It's very mysterious. But as you go on and plumb this question, you begin to develop the feeling that your existence is exceedingly odd. In many ways, odd. Odd because it is here and it so easily might not have been. After all, if your father hadn't met your mother, would you be here? Now, of course, somebody would be here because he might have met somebody else. <laughs> would that be you? Of course it would. Don't you see? You can only be you by being someone. But every someone is you. Every someone is I. That's your name, you say. Uh, it's me. I am here. And everybody feels that I in the same way. It's the same feeling. Just like blue everywhere is the same color. So I-ness being, as it were, the most fundamental thing in man is also fundamental to the universe. It too is I. And our I is a special case of it. Coming out from the, in quotes, central I, like so many tits from the belly of a sow, or so many spines from a sea urchin, so many legs from a spider. And that is, of course, why the images of the Hindu gods are shown with many arms or many faces, because it is saying that all arms are the arms of the divinity. All faces are its masks. So, you see, there's really nothing to worry about. Because the, the, the important you is perfectly indestructible. It's what there is. Our comings and goings, our fortunes and misfortunes are a sort of mirage. The more we know about them, the more we know about the world, the more diaphanous it seems. And therefore, everything in the world has the characteristics of smoke. You know, when you blow a cigarette or pipe or something and a cloud of smoke and you see it in the sunbeam and it's full of walls and designs and all kinds of marvelous things going on and then slowly it disappears. 
Well, everything's just like that. Now, there are two attitudes you can take to that state of affairs. You can say sour grapes. It's all a lousy, wretched trap. And I, here I am, and I'm given all these feelings of love and attachment and joy of life, and then I fall apart. My teeth drop out. My eyes become feeble. I get cancer or cirrhosis of the liver or something, and then it all falls apart, and it's too bad. Therefore, therefore, don't become attached to things. Don't enjoy life. Treat it, holding it off like that, just like a very, very firm person who's been jilted and says, never again will I get mixed up with love, because love hurts. But on the other hand, a weaving of smoke can be very beautiful, provided you don't lean on it, provided you don't try to preserve it, catch hold of it. Then you destroy it. So exactly the same way, there's nothing in the way of form that you can lean on, that you can grasp. And if you see that, then the world of form is very beautiful. If you let it go, to love people, you see, if you're a husband and wife, you, you must let each other go. Otherwise, the marriage is either going to break up or it's going to be hell. If you love a person, you say to that person, look, I love you, whatever that may be. I've seen quite a bit of it, and I know there's lots that I haven't seen. But still, it's you, and I want you to be what you want to be. And I won't be happy if I've got you in a cage. You'll be a bird without song. And they're likely to go on loving each other. But if they wrap each other up with all sorts of ties and chains and documents and things, then uh, they are not on a very safe basis. The very firm words of those documents belie the situation, because nobody curses and swears and kisses the Bible and all sorts of things like that if he means yes. If there's some doubt that he means yes, then he's asked to make all these rituals of cursing and swearing, signing on dotted lines and putting the seal something. Indicates doubt right at once. It, it just does fly in the argument <coughs> from the beginning. So when uh, the Hindu and Buddhist philosophers speak of detachment from all this apparent world of separate beings, detachment means going with this whole thing and not resisting its change. And you can afford to go with it. You can afford to get mixed up in life and to fall in love and to get involved with all sorts of things. You could afford it if you know that it's an illusion. But this is not illusion in a bad sense of the word. Here's this Hindu word, crucial. The world is called maya. This word maya, yes, it means illusion. It means magic. It means art. It means delineation or measurement. And so from matra we get meter. And we also get matter, material. Isn't it funny that when we say material, today we mean something very real. Whereas the root of the word is illusion. <laughs> so you see, I mean measurement is kind of an illusion. You don't find inches lying around. <laughs> you can't pick up an inch. <laughs> 
So in, in the same way that hours and inches and pounds and uh, dollars and so on are actually imaginary. <coughs> there are uh, elaborate systems of cosmic bookkeeping with their little scratches on paper, little hairlines on dials. So in exactly that way, the distinction between things is maya, is imaginary. But what an imagination. In a way, to say that the world is maya is at the same time to say that what lies behind maya is immaterial. Look at the reversal of the word. Oh, it's immaterial. doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters? It's all this. But that gets us to a deeper point yet. The, the self, the real self, doesn't matter. Which is another way of saying it doesn't exist for any purpose. It doesn't need to exist for any purpose. What purpose would it exist for? When it's what there is. It doesn't need, it won't find anything in the future. There's nothing in the past that it has to go back and remember. It's now, an eternal now. And so in that way, it doesn't matter. But therefore, the most important thing in the universe is the one thing that doesn't matter, the one thing that's totally and completely useless, and that nobody can find anything for. Once a Zen master was asked, what is the most valuable thing in the world? And he answered, the head of a dead cat. Why? Because no one can put a price on it. So this self, the Brahman, is like the head of a dead cat. But you see, if then you say, hmm, I uh, really ought to get that dead cat's head because... Um, something spiritual about it, and uh, it'd be very good for me. After all, if I, if I knew the self, I might be a better person. People might like me more. I'd be more constructive in society. I would uh, do this, that, and the other. But you see, that's putting the cart before the horse. That's trying to make the tail wag the dog. The knowledge of Brahman, the self, never does anybody any good if they're trying to make it do them some good. Only when they're not concerned with whether it does them any good or not, does it do them any good. It's like when you relax and you go out and play. Americans in particular don't know how to do this because they're always justified. They always say it's good for me. It's exercise. It's a change from work and that'll be able to make me work better. See. Everything they do is done for some serious reason. It's the Protestant conscience. And so we never play, except very exceptionally, because play is that which is done just for itself, for fun. So the self, the Atman, the Brahman, exists for fun. It has no reason to exist. It's completely useless. And uh, it is, therefore, maya is linked with the word lila. And that means play.
Also, of course, the word illusion in English is derived from the Latin ludere, to play. So the nature, you might say, of the self is that it does no work. It only plays. Work is something serious, you know, that you do for a purpose because you believe that you've got to go on living. You work to survive because you think you have to survive. That was one of the things they told you as a little <coughs> child. You've got to go on, man. But you don't have to. <laughs> this thing doesn't have to go on. That's why it does. I know that sounds paradoxical, but uh, there's so many things in life that are like that. If I'm trying to impress people, I usually don't. If you try too hard with anything, you usually make a mess of it. And so this basic thing then is that the self, the Brahman behind the world, is engaged in play. This, it is in this sense that the Hindu philosophers say, Brahman does not actually become the world. The meaning of that is, he's playing at being it, or it's playing at being it, as distinct from working at it. And so, in certain Oriental countries, when one refers to noble people of high birth, it is often said, so-so, Lord so-and-so has died. The Japanese would say, he has played at dying. Or will he play at taking a journey to Tokyo? <laughs> also, remember this, although I've constantly used in this talk the word one to apply to the self and central, the Hindus don't use this word except speaking poetically and loosely. The self is not one. The self is called non-dual. Because you see, the idea of one has an opposite. The opposite of one is many, or none. But the which than which there is no witcher has no opposite. There's nothing outside it. So you can't call it one. Because one is an exclusive idea. It excludes two. So they call it, instead of one, they call it non-dual, which is Advaita. This is from the word, you see, Deva is the root meaning two. The V becomes U, so we get dual. And A is the meaning in Sanskrit often non. Non-dual, Advaita. And so it, it doesn't exclude anything. One is an exclusive word. Advaita is meant to be a totally inclusive kind of unity. Now, of course, this word itself, when you look at it from a logical standpoint, is a dualistic word, just like one. It's the opposite of Dvaita, Dvaita and Advaita. But the idea here in Indian philosophy is to use this word in a certain way. Now, you know that on a flat surface, you can't draw three dimensions. Anything you draw will be in two dimensions. But 
Why do we see three dimensions? Because of an artistic convention called one-pointed perspective, which will give you the illusion of a third dimension. Now, in other words, a two-dimensional line is being used to imply a third dimension which can never be expressed on a flat surface. So in exactly the same way, Advaita is a word used specially to designate what lies beyond all logical categories. So you must remember, of course, that the word play and the word game have many levels of meaning. We are accustomed to use the word play in opposition to work and to regard play as trivial and work as serious. Very largely, a game or a play is something in, associated in our minds with triviality. You're only playing with me, says a girl to a suitor. You're not serious. How serious do you have to be? When does one get serious in a flirtation? When do we say, this is getting serious? When you're holding hands, playing footsies under the table, kissing, petting, sleeping together, married and babies. Maybe that's serious. <laughs> but uh, we also use the word play in a non-trivial sense. I went to hear Heifetz playing the violin. Was that a trivial matter? On the contrary, the very highest kind of art form, still play. I say too, when I do philosophy, like I'm doing with you, this is entertainment. But in the sense, perhaps, I hope, of your listening to someone play a musical classic. I'm not being serious but I am being sincere. The difference, you see, between seriousness and sincerity is that seriousness is someone speaking in the context of the possibility of tragedy. That there is a situation where things might go absolutely wrong. And then I put on the expression which is serious. That's why soldiers on parade are always serious. They don't laugh. And when they salute the flag, they put on a stern expression. That's why in courts of law and in churches, people don't normally laugh, because all that we deal with here is very important, a matter of life and death. But the fundamental question must be, be brought forth. Is God serious? And obviously the answer is no. Because there's nothing to be serious about. I said also that the self, as conceived, the supreme self, was quite useless. That it was immaterial. It doesn't matter. Because it transcends all values of what is better or worse, what is upwards or downwards, what is good and bad, it so weaves the world 
that the good and the bad play together, like the black and white pieces in the game of chess. So play is deeply the sort of thing children like to do with deep absorption and fascination to drop pebbles into the water and watch the concentric circles of waves. Or mathematicians. Mathematicians, you know, uh, especially what we call higher mathematicians, are entirely lacking in seriousness. They couldn't give a hoot in hell as to whether what they're doing has any practical application. They are working entirely on interesting puzzles and working out what they call elegant and beautiful solutions to these puzzles. And they can go on and on like that in absorbed meditation, spend their whole lives doing it. Or consider the musician practicing, working out interpretations. What is he doing? He's making series of interesting noises on instruments. Now what do people like to do? when they don't have to do anything. Well, as far as I can make out, as you look all over the world, they like to get together and do something rhythmic. They may dance, they may sing, they may even play games, because, say, in playing dice, there's a certain wonderful rhythm to shaking the, uh, the cup and rolling the dice out on the table, or dealing cards, dip, 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 you know? All the things that people like to do and think about these rhythms. Or some people like to knit, and this is, this is a, a rhythmic thing, you see. Others just like to breathe. There are all sorts of ways in which we love to do this. Now, you see, our very existence is a rhythm of waking and sleeping, eating and moving, and that's all we're doing. And just consider what we do every day. What's it all about? Does it really mean anything? Does it go anywhere? It's just because we want to keep on doing this kind of a hoop de da So you can get a certain vision of life where everything is seen to be a complex pattern of rhythm. Dances. The human dance. The flower dance, the bee dance, the giraffe dance. And these are also comparable to various games. Poker, bridge, backgammon, chess, checkers, etc. Or to various musical forms. Sonata, fugue, partita, concerto, symphony, or whatever. And that's what this all is. It's jazz. You see? This is a big jazz, this world. And what it's trying to do is to see how jazzed up it can get. How far out this play of rhythm can go. Because that's what we all come down to, you see. We're going this... In every conceivable way. So then, that is why, you see, it's this fundamental view that the world is play. 
Now, let's examine the rules of this game. The basic form of the cosmic game, according to the Hindu view, is the game of hide-and-seek. Or you might call it the game of lost and found. Or again, now you see it, now you don't. In examining the nature of vibration, we find a very peculiar thing. If you represent vibration as a wave motion, you will notice that there is no such manifestation as half a wave. We do not find in nature crests without troughs or troughs without crests. No sound is produced unless there is both. Both the, the, the beat, as it were, and the interval between. Now, this wave phenomenon is happening on ever so many scales. There is the very, very fast wave of light, the slower wave of sound. Then there are all sorts of other wave uh, processes, the beat of the heart, the rhythm of the breath, waking and sleeping, the peak of human life from birth to maturity and down again to death. And the slower the wave goes, the more difficult it is to see that the crest and the trough are inseparable. So that we become persuaded in the game of hide-and-seek that it is possible for the trough to go down and down and down forever and never rise again into a crest. Forgetting that trough implies crest just as crest implies trough. There is no such thing, you see, as pure sound. Sound is sound silence. Light is light darkness. Light is pulsation. And between every light pulse, there's the dark pulse. And so the Hindu image is that the self eternally plays a game of hide-and-seek with itself. Hindus calculate time in kalpa units. And the kalpa is 4,320,000 years. And so they say that for a period of a kalpa, the worlds are manifested, or any particular universe, not all universes, but let's say any particular galaxy or, what, or whatever it may be, world order of some kind. Don't take this too literally. Don't take these figures as being some sort of divine revelation as to making predictions and prophecies. They're symbolic figures. So for one kalpa, the world is manifested. And that period is called in Sanskrit a manvantara. And during that time, the Brahman plays hide. And 
he hides, it hides in all of us, pretending that it's us. And then at the end of the Kalpa, there comes the period called Pralaya. And that also is a Kalpa long. And in that period, the Brahman, as it were, comes out of the act and returns to itself in peace and bliss. This is a very logical idea. What would you do if you were God? Isn't the whole fun of things, as every child knows, to go on adventures, to make-believe, to create illusions, that is to say, patterns, and so, uh, for some ways of talking in Hindu thought, this world is the dream of the Godhead. The Godhead is, of course, represented as in a way two-faced. With one face, he dreams and is absorbed in the dream world. With the other face, he is liberated. In other words, what you have to understand correctly is that from the standpoint of the self, the supreme self, the pralaya and the manvantara are simultaneous. But put into mythological form for human consumption, they are represented as being in sequence, following each other. But they really happen at the same time. So that one doesn't realize union with the self after death, later than a certain time, all references to the hereafter should correctly be understood as the herein, as a domain deeper than egocentric consciousness. That is to say, when you get down to the bottom of the egocentric consciousness, you get to its limit, which is figuratively its death then you go on inwards, the self deeper than the conscious attention. And in that way, you go inwards to eternity. You don't go onwards to eternity. To go onwards is to find only time and time and time and more time and more time, in which things go round and round and round forever. But to go in is to go to eternity. But in the ordinary way, when we are talking about this graphically and vividly, in imagistic terms, we can talk about the everlasting game of hide-and-seek, which the self plays with itself. It forgets who it is and then creeps up behind itself and says, Boo! And that's a great thrill. It pretends that things are getting serious just as a great actor on the stage. Although the audience know that what they're seeing is only a play, the skill of the actor is to take the audience in and to have them all sitting in anxiety on the edges of their seats or to be weeping or laughing or utterly involved in what they really know is only a play. So you would imagine that if there were a very great actor with absolutely superb technique, he would take himself in. And he, you see, would feel that the play was real. Well, that's their idea of what we're doing here and now.
we are all the Brahman acting our own parts being human playing the human game so beautifully that he is enchanted do you see what enchanted means under the influence of a chant hypnotized spellbound fascinated and that fascination is Maya now then this works on a little plan let us consider the breakdown of a single Kalpa. It consists of four Yugas. Yuga. That means an epoch. Number one is called Krita or sometimes Satya. And these names are based on the Hindu game of dice. There are four throws in their game, and Krita means the perfect throw, the throw of four. Number two is Treta, the throw of three. Number three is Dvapara, the throw of two. And number four is Kali, that's the worst throw, the throw of value one. Now, you will see that, that these yugas divide up a period of 4,320,000 years. I never remember numbers too well. So, the first yuga is 1,000,000 780,000 years long. The second is 1,296,000 years. The third, the Dvapara, is 864,000. And the uh, Kali Yuga is 432,000. Now you see what's happening here. What, 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 when, when the manifestation starts, it's as good as possible. Everything is just glorious. Because you know well that if you were dreaming anything you wanted to dream, you would start out by having the most luscious dreams imaginable. Now, when we get, you see, to the Treta Yuga, something is a little bit wrong. Krita is four square. Everything's perfect, like the symbol of the square is an ancient symbol of perfection. Treta is the triangle. Something's missing. There's a little bit of un uncertainty and danger now enters. By the time we get to Dvapara, the forces of light and darkness are equal. Duality, the pair. But when we get to Kali, the force of darkness overcomes. But now you see what happens is, if you take one-third of the Treta Yuga as being on the bad side, half of the Dvapara Yuga as being on the bad side, and all of the Kali Yuga and you add those figures up, 
you will get the bad side occupying only one-third of the total time. So what's going on here? It is not quite a situation, you see, it is not a view of the cosmos in which good and evil are so evenly balanced that nothing happens. Evil is just troublesome enough to give good a run for its money. It's as the game that is being played here is playing order against chaos. But you've got to have some chaos in order to play the game of order against it. But if order wins, there's no further game. If chaos wins, there's no further game. If they're equally balanced, it's a stalemate. So what happens is this. Order is, or, chaos is always losing, but is never defeated. It's the good loser. <laughs> and that is a game that is worth the candle. Let's take playing chess. If you get an opponent who can always defeat you, you stop playing with him. If you get a, an opponent whom you can always defeat, you stop playing with him. But so long as there is a certain uncertainty of outcome and you win some of the time, then it's a good game. And this is simply a, sim a number symbolism, as I said again, not to be taken literally, literally of the way this thing works. So the mythology says that we are now in the Kali Yuga, which started a little before 3000 BC. So we've got a long way to go to the end of it if you've got to take this literally. But of course, people have a way of always being in the Kali Yuga. Uh, we can go back to Egyptian inscriptions from 6000 BC, which say is that the world is going hopelessly to the dogs. Uh, that's always been a, the complaint. But according to this mythology, there are, the, the, you have to realize the, the Lord, the Brahman, in three aspects. One is Brahma, the creative principle. Two is Vishnu, the preserving principle. And three is Shiva, the destroying principle. And Shiva is very important here. Shiva is always represented in Hindu imagery as a yogi. He is the destroyer in the sense of being the liberator, the cracker of shells so that chickens can come forth, the breaker up of mothers so that their children can be unsmothered, the liberative destruction, the bonfire. That's why devotees of Shiva like to do their meditations along the banks of the Ganges where they burn dead bodies. Because through destruction, life is constantly renewed. Shiva has a paramour, and her name is Kali, but that is a different word than this Kali. You mustn't confuse the two. And Kali is much worse than Shiva. She is black. 
and she has a long, long tongue, and her eye teeth are like fangs, but she's very beautiful otherwise. Has a lovely figure, but she's black. And in one hand, her right hand, she carries a scimitar, and in her left, she carries a severed head hanging by the hair. And Kali, who is Shiva's, you see, Shiva is normally considered wedded. All the gods have their uh, paramours, and they're all examples of the one central self. She's called Parvati, but her, that's her bright aspect. But her dark aspect is Kali. And Kali is the awful awfuls, the thing above all that men most dread. Kali is outer darkness. Kali is the end. She may be represented as a blood-sucking octopus, as a spider mother that eats its spouse. And uh, Kali is the principle of total night. And yet there are those in India like Sri Ramakrishna for whom Kali is the supreme mother goddess. Because she is two-faced. She is playful and terrifying, loving and devouring. destroyer and savior. And the cult of Kali has its, has its importance. Helping one to see the light principle in the very depths of darkness. I have some suggestions for meditation on Kali, which you can all practice very easily. You go to the aquarium and you find out there the monsters of the deep that make you feel most uncomfortable and you study them. So in this way, Kali is studied by her devotees. And if you meditate on those, this will be like putting manure on the soil. And out of all this apparently morbid and dismal thinking, bright things will begin to arise. Because you will realize that what Kali is, is the most far out act that the Supreme Self can put on. The symbol of complete alienation from itself. So what happens, you see, is this. In the process of the game of hide and seek, the Supreme Self tries to see how far out it can get. Just like children like to sit around and have a competition as to who can make the most hideous face. And so, this gets worse and worse as the time cycle goes on. Until at the end of the Kali Yuga, Shiva puts in an appearance and he's all black and he has ten arms and he dances a dance called the Tandava and in dancing the Tandava the whole universe is destroyed in fire. But of course, as Shiva, having done this wreckage, turns around to leave the stage, you find that on the back of his head is the face of Brahma, the creator. And it starts again.
Well, now, you see, this involves certain ideas that are quite alien to the West. One, the idea of the world as play. Our Lord God in the West tends to be over-serious. And no great Christian artist has ever painted a laughing Christ or a smiling Christ. Nothing that I've seen of any of the great masters. Always this figure is tragic and has that sort of look in the eye which says, one of these days you and I have got to get together for a very serious talk. <laughs> So you see, there is some difficulty about the, the notion of the world as dramatic play for us. There's another difficult notion here, and that is cyclic time. See, most of us live in linear time. This originated with St. Augustine and his interpretation of the Bible. Now, I don't know how true this really is, but it's certainly a big fashion in modern scholarship to say that it was Judaism that gave us the idea of history. Hindus have no interest in history whatsoever, or not until recent times. To the total exasperation of historians, there is no way of finding textual evidence of the age of most of the Hindu scriptures because they aren't interested in history as such. They are only interested in human events as archetypal occurrences, as repetitions of the great mythological themes over and over again. So if in a document started out that a certain adventure happened to King so-and-so, whom everybody knew at the time, in the next generation, they had changed the name of that king to the current king, because the story was typical anyway. They just wanted to say a king everybody knew. They altered things in that way, and so they know no kind of chronology. And if you ask uh, even quite intelligent Asians about this, they have difficulty in understanding what kind of a question you're asking. What is this history thing? Whereas on the other hand, according to our scholars, the Jews were historically minded because they remembered the story of their descent from Adam and Abraham, the great event of the liberation from Egypt, and then the uh, triumphant reign of King David, and then things go sliding downhill as other political forces become stronger and stronger. And so they get fixed on the idea that one day is going to be the day of the Lord. And the Messiah will come and put an end to history. And there will be the restoration of paradise. But this is linear. They don't think of the world having been created many, many times before and come to an end many, many times before. It's one clear ascent from start to finish, from alpha to omega. 
Well, when St. Augustine was thinking about this, he thought, if time is cyclic, Jesus would have to be crucified for the salvation of the world once in every cycle. But for some reason, he had it firmly fixed into his head that there was only one historical crucifixion in time. What they call the one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Once is enough. Now, of course, he got his hierarchies confused. It's true there is one sacrifice, but that's on the plane of eternity. On the plane of time, eternal things can be repeated again and again and again. But so, as a result of that, we are handed down, not a Greek, the Greeks also had cyclic time, like the Hindus, but we have been handed down linear time, and therefore we are always thinking of a progression that will take us steadily, 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 faster and faster to a more and more perfect world. And it will get better and better and better and better all the way along if we keep our heads. <laughs> now, this shows, I think, a rather naive view of human nature. Human beings tend to smash what they create and say, let's do it again. There is that in man, which uh, is also in the child. Rub it out. What fun. And so it isn't really too realistic to suppose that human beings will simply get better and better and better and better and better because they'll soon get tired of it. They say, let's be as awful as possible. See, there was that element in Nazism. How awful can you get? How brutal can you be? How destructive? And that, uh, it isn't just Germans, you know, who have that. See, we, we, we are converting all the living world around us into excrement and pretending it doesn't happen that way. And we are the most marvelous vortices in this stream of food which whirls around as us and then disappears into excrements which again fertilize the soil and uh, uh, we keep on at it. So you see, there is that thing in us which is represented by Shiva Kali. And it's always there. Now the Hindu looks at the world with very, very hard-boiled realism in this way and sees terror and magnificence, love and fury two faces of the same thing. And you could say, well, is there any peace possible? 
after you've looked at this picture for a long, long time, and you've conceived the endless, endless cycles, because this thing goes on always and always and always. Per omnia saecula saeculorum, world without end. And the Hindu sometimes feels, Oh, Brahma, don't you ever get tired of it? No. Because Brahma doesn't have to remember anything. And you only get tired of things you remember. That's why from the standpoint of Brahma, there's no time. Only an eternal now. So the secret of waking up from the drama, the endless cycles, is the realization that the only time that there is, is the present. And when you become awake to that, boredom is at an end, and you are delivered from the cycles. Not in the sense that they disappear, that you no longer go through them. You do go through them. But you know, you realize that they're not going anywhere. Now then, supposing you liken the rhythm of these cycles to music. Why, surely, you don't hurry it up. You don't say, let's get to the end faster. You know how to listen to music only when you slow down time and sit back and let that be. And so, in the same way, you can see every little detail of life in a new way. You say, oh my, look at that. And so uh, one's eyes are opened in astonishment by being living totally here and now. This concludes Session 9 of Out of Your Mind, Essential Listening from the Alan Watts Audio Archives. Our program continues with Session 10. I started out yesterday to discuss what the self means in Hindu philosophy, the principle tattvam asi, that art thou, meaning that the self is the basis of all being. And being is not something into which we come, but out of which we proceed. In popular language, we say, I came into this world, as if you came from somewhere else altogether, from outside. But you don't. You come out of this world, just in the same way as the leaves come from the tree. And so in that way you are an expression of it, and the self meaning itself, self meaning identity, self meaning basis, ground, 
is what everybody fundamentally is. Then I went on to discuss the world as the self in the sense of the, the cosmos as the self. The great cycles of time in which, according to Hindu philosophy and mythology, the world is manifested and then again withdrawn. And now I want to go on to discuss the human world as the self. Well now, there have in the known history of mankind been about three types of culture. We'll call them hunting cultures, agrarian cultures, and industrial cultures. The hunting culture seems to have been the earliest. And agrarian cultures arose when hunters learned to farm and therefore had to settle in certain places. And it was then that men built cities. And when we pass from the hunting to the agrarian culture, we notice two very important changes occur. In the hunting culture, every man is expert in the whole culture. That's because he spends a good deal of time alone in the forests or on the hills. And so he has to know how to make clothes, how to cook, how to build, how to fight, ride, and all those things. But as soon as people become settled in cities, we get a division of labor. Because it's obviously more practical when you're all living together for some people to specialize in some things and some in others. The other important difference is the difference of religion between the hunting culture and the agrarian culture. The religious man of the hunting culture is generally known as a shaman, S-A-H-A-M-A-N. And a shaman is a kind of weird individual, and I mean weird in the ancient sense of the word, not queer, but weird in the sense of magic. Because he is a person of a peculiar type of sensitivity who finds initiation into the shaman role by going off by himself for a long time into the depths of the forests or the heights of the mountains. And in that isolation, he comes in touch with a domain of consciousness which is known by all sorts of names. The spirit world, the ancestors, the gods, or whatever. And his knowledge of that world is supposed to give him a peculiar powers of healing, of prophecy, of uh, magic in general. The thing that you must note, though, about a shaman is that his initiation is found by himself. He does not receive initiation from an order or a guru. 
On the other hand, the religious man of the agrarian community is a priest. And a priest is almost invariably an ordained person. He receives his power from a community of priests or from a guru. In other words, from tradition. Tradition is all important in the agrarian community. Now then, reasonably enough, the first communities are stockaded enclosures. They are made of palings. And so we speak of people being within the pale and beyond the pale. And we cause the word paling we still use in fencing. And you know that the Spanish for a tree is palo. So here is a primitive stockaded community. And as often as not, this community will settle at a crossroads for obvious reasons. Where roads cross, that's where people meet. And so it's liable to have four gates and these crossing main streets. And that immediately establishes four divisions of the city. And so oddly enough, in Hindu society, there are four castes based on the four fundamental divisions of labor. And number one <coughs> is the caste of priests, and they're called Brahmana. Number two is the caste of warriors, and also rulers, and they're called Kshatriya. Number three is the caste of merchants and tradesmen, and they're called Vaishya. And number four are laborers, and they are called Shudra. So those are the four principal roles in the world of settled humanity. It's interesting, I said people settled in cities because they had to plant. And there are many legends to the effect that what they were mostly concerned with planting were grapes for wine, and they cultivated vineyards. And uh, it's said of Noah that after the flood in the Bible, the first thing he did was to plant a vineyard. He knew which side was up. <laughs> so now, then those are the roles. Those are, uh, you might say, masks, as it were, of the Brahman in this game called the social game. Now then, when you enter society, you are born into a caste. And this is very understandable in a community where you don't have a generalized system of education. You don't go to school, and therefore you learn what to do in life from your parents and your family. So if you grow up as a carpenter's son, it never occurs to you to do anything else but carpentry. Why would you? You might become a better carpenter than your father, but still that would be the natural thing to do. It's only when one is exposed to school and then the people begin to talk about, well, what do you want to be in life? That people get the idea that they might be anything. So if the 
uh, if this sort of way of life is natural to you, you don't find it particularly objectionable. Of course, all kinds of weird uh, complications and rituals and prohibitions grow up in the course of time that can make this system very cumbersome, as it has been until quite recently in India. Then what happens is this. You go through an evolution in your development in this community, which has first of all the stage called brahmacharya, studentship or apprenticeship. After that you enter the stage of grihastha, meaning householder. And a householder has two duties. One is called artha, A-R-T-H-A, and the other, Kama, K-A-M-A. Artha means the duties of citizenship, partaking in the political life of the community. Kama, K-A-M-A, means the cultivation of the senses, of aesthetic and sensual beauty. And therefore, Kama includes the art of love, the arts of beautification, of dress, of cooking, and all that kind of thing. So that the Kama Sutra is the scripture about love. Kama, in a sense, means passion, and is the great Hindu manual of how to behave sexually. It's a book that every child ought to read on gaining puberty, uh, so that he would get some sense of how to make love without being a mere baboon. Uh, then there is also the Arthur Shastra, and that is the scripture about rulers and uh, the, the way of the Kshatriya caste. Now, so you've got these stages now, Brahmacharya, which is studentship, Artha and Kama, they go together, and they constitute the duties of Grihastha, of a householder. Beyond that, there is the duty of Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, and Dharma has many, many meanings in Sanskrit. It can mean something like law or justice. Could even mean slightly righteousness, but not as we have come to understand that word in common speech today. Perhaps rightness would be better than righteousness. But dharma has a primary meaning of method. So when we speak of the dharma of the Buddha, the Buddha's doctrine, it is the Buddha's method, not law. So a, a citizen also has to conform to dharma. And uh, that is to say to ritual and ethical and moral game rules for the community. But now, when in the course of time he has established his household, he has taught his oldest son to take over the governorship of the household, the father, or for that matter, mother, may enter into a new stage of life altogether, which is not grihastha, but is called vanaprastha, and that means 
forest dweller as distinct from householder. Now you see what's happened. We've gone full cycle. We came out of the forest as a hunter. We settled in a community and indulged in what is called in Sanskrit loka sangraha. Sangraha means upholding. Loka, the world. Upholding the world game. And that is everybody's dharma or duty. Dharma can also be translated duty. And svadharma, S-V-A in front of dharma, means your own duty. Or better, your own function, which we would translate into English as vocation. So everybody's caste work is his svadharma, and of course these castes are subdivided into various other kinds of specializations. When you have fulfilled your svadharma, you go into the vanaprastha stage. Now, anciently that meant that you actually did go out into the forest and you became, of all things, it's called a shramana in Sanskrit. S-R-A-M-A-N-A. And it is thought that that is the word shaman. You see, what happens is this then, that an individual who all his life long has played the social game is then says, well, now I've done that. I've assumed this role. I've become identified with Tinker Tailor, Soldier Sailor, whatever it was. But now who am I? Really? In order to find that out, I have to go off by myself. Why? Because you have a role conception, a mask conception of yourself, because other people tell you who you are. We are constantly, in every social interchange, in the most common remarks, telling other people who they are. Everything leads up to that. The way I act towards you, the way you act towards me, tells me who I am and tells you who you are. For example, you come and sit here and listen to me talk. You are, by doing that, telling me I'm some kind of a teacher. And you're telling yourselves that you're some kind of students. And that's only one thing, you see, one little incident. In business, every day, in your housework and everything you do, everybody around you is telling you what you are and who you are by expecting certain behavior from you, which if you're a reasonable and socially inclined person, you perform because that's what's expected of you. So you are told who you are. So when we come, we'd had enough of that, you see. But this is, oh, let's not listen to all this anymore. That's why uh, the Shramana, or the Vanaprastha, one of the first things he practices is silence. It's called mauna, M-A-U-N-A. And he may take a vow not to speak for a month or a year. And after about a month of mauna, you don't only stop talking, but you stop thinking in words. And that's a very curious experience when it happens, because 
all the senses take on a tremendous intensity. You see things which you've never seen before because you stop codifying and classifying the world by thinking. Sunsets appear incredibly more vivid and uh, flowers are enchanting. The whole world comes alive to the Mauni. The only danger is this, the Mauni has to be careful because he loses all moral discrimination. In other words, if the Mauni gets involved in a riot, he joins the riot. <laughs> because that's just the way things are going, you see. And so he has to be careful. And that's why in this state of Vanaprastha, the new man in the game will seek out a guru, a teacher, who is, has been through the whole discipline of yoga or whatever it is that is practiced by Ivana Prasta and will help him out and see that he doesn't get into trouble. That's why a guru, when he accepts a student, is always said to become responsible for that individual's karma. Karma, you know, means activity and also the results of activity. So you see what's happened. This man who goes into the Vanaprastha stage of life takes off every sign that would identify him as someone. He does away with his name. He does away with the usual clothes he would wear and puts on uh, usually a yellow or some kind of a robe, or he may more often than that be really naked, and may have a loincloth or not even that. And often these people cover themselves with ashes, and uh, their hair is matted, and they don't take care of themselves that way anymore, because they're outside the pale. You see, they are outcasts, but they are upper outcasts. Below them are the lower outcasts, known as the today the Harijan, the name that Gandhi gave them, the untouchables. And the untouchables were the aboriginal peoples of India. When the Aryan invasion occurred, at a rather vague date, but shortly after 2000 BC, the Aryans uh, formed these castes, and the people who were originally in the land, like the Indians here, were considered to be outcasts. They were beyond the pale. So, you have here a marvelous microcosm. You have a political and social analog of the manifestation and withdrawal of the worlds, of the Lord playing the game, or the self playing the game of being all of us, and then as each individual reaches moksha, the self realizes in terms of an individual life that it is the self. So exactly in this way the child representing the self on the way in comes into this world, plays around for a while. <coughs> there are four castes just as there are four yugas to the Kalpa cycle, you remember? And then out it goes. Back to the forest. 
we would say back to nature. But you see, the outgoing stage of vanaprastha is a much higher state in the course of evolution than the hunting uh, society person who is primitive. He isn't simply going back to where he came from. He's spiraled. He's come round to an equivalent position, but at a higher level. And what he has gained in the interim is self-awareness. I mean that too in the ordinary sense when we speak of self-consciousness. See, it's not much fun to be happy and not know it. We need a certain resonance. Self-consciousness is an echo in our heads, an echo of what we do, but wouldn't be aware of doing it if there wasn't an echo. When you see yourself in a mirror, that mirror is a visual echo of your face. And that's why in a room such as this, it's a very comfortable room for me to talk in, because it has resonance. And so self-consciousness is neurological resonance. Now you know how troublesome resonance can get if it's not properly worked out. You can get echoes that just won't stop. So you go into a great cave somewhere and you say, Hi! It says, hi, 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 all off in the distance. See? That's very confusing. Now that's the sort of snarl that self-consciousness can get into, and we call it anxiety. When I keep, keep, keep thinking, did I do the right thing? In the course of some performance, if I'm constantly aware of myself in a kind of anxious, critical way, my resonance becomes too high. And so I get confused and jittery. But if you learn that self-consciousness has limits, that self-awareness cannot possibly enable you to be free of making mistakes, you can learn to be spontaneous in spite of being self-aware and enjoy the echo. So what happens that having developed self-consciousness through education, through work with other people, having developed all the disciplines of the culture, the vanaprastha then becomes again as a child. But then, you see, he has what Freud says the child has from the beginning. Freud called it the oceanic feeling. And the oceanic feeling is the sensation of being one with the universe. The Vanaprastha gets that back. But it's not a child's oceanic feeling. It's an adult's oceanic feeling, something which the psychoanalysts don't discuss because according to them all oceanic feelings are regressive. But if there is a mature oceanic feeling as contrasted with the immature oceanic feeling of the child which is as different as the oak is from the acorn. And so you can have this sensation 
you see, of total unity with the cosmos, of the, shall I call it, expansion to infinity or contraction to infinity of your identity, without forgetting society's game rules with regard to you. In other words, it doesn't mean that you forget your address, telephone number, social security number, and the name you were given. You remember all that. And you can play that game when necessary. But you know it's a game. So, there is no way, as a matter of fact, of escaping from playing these games. And the only thing is that when you find out, you see, that you are thoroughly selfish, you inquire, what is it, what is the self that I love? What is this thing that I'm so interested in advancing and in protecting? And you look very closely in to what you feel when you think you feel yourself. And you know what you find out? That yourself is everything that you thought was someone else or something else. You have no knowledge of yourself, you see, except in relation to others. Self and other are as inseparable as back and front. There is no knowledge of self without the knowledge of otherness. There is no knowledge of the voluntary without the knowledge of the involuntary, of can without can't. So they go together. And that going together of self and other is non-duality. That's Advaita. That is the self with a capital S. So through self, one finds deliverance from self. And so finally we come to the last consideration which is the question in what way and by what means can an individual who is under the impression that he is a separate individual limited by and enclosed in his bag of skin how can such a person effectively realize that he is deep down the universal self, the Brahman. This, of course, is a curious question. It proposes a journey to the place where you already are. Now, it's true that you may not know that you are there, but you are. And if you take a journey to the place where you are, you will visit many other places than the place where you are. And perhaps when you find through some long experience that all the places you go to are not the place you wanted to find, you, it may occur to you that you were already there in the beginning. And that is the Dharma, or method, as I translated that word, which all gurus, teachers of spiritual development, use fundamentally.
They are all of them tricksters, but in the most beneficent sense of the word trickster. Why trickster? Because, do you know, it's terribly difficult, in fact it's impossible, to surprise yourself on purpose. And yet, to be surprised is a great thing. But you can't plan a surprise for yourself. Somebody else can do it for you. And that is why so often a guru or teacher is necessary in this process. But let me say right from the start that a guru, there are many kinds of gurus. First of all, among human gurus, there are square gurus, and there are beat gurus. <laughs> there are gurus like, uh, well, let's say a great Zen master today. Let's take Oda Roshi at Daitokuji, who is a square guru and a very good one. But you go through regular channels. Then there is a guru like uh, Mr. Gurdjieff, who is a rascal guru who leads you in by means that are very, very strange indeed. Then there are gurus that are not people. The gurus may be situations, a certain kind of problem or encounter. Even a book can to some extent be a guru. A friend can be a guru. I've often thought of writing a story about a man who is some sort of uh, guru seeker and uh, potential yogi who goes one day into an automat and sits down at a table where there is another fellow and he sort of thinks that this man looks wise and he projects onto him the idea that he is a guru and he says I feel there's something special about you and the man says oh really uh, really, actually, there's nothing special about me. I happen to be an insurance salesman. <laughs> and this other fellow says, isn't that fascinating how modest he is? <laughs> <laughs> and then I want to develop this story. Step by step, they keep meeting each other because they both eat at the same automat regularly for lunch. And uh, although the, uh, the fellow really is an insurance salesman and doesn't know a thing about these things, it in the end results in the enlightenment of the person who projected this image upon him. <laughs> so there are, as I say, many kinds of guru. But the problem of the guru is to show the inquirer in some effective way that he already has what he's looking for. Now, in Hindu traditions, the realization of who you really are is called basically sadhana. And sadhana means uh, the discipline, the, uh, the way of life that it's necessary to follow in order to escape from the illusion that you are merely an in skin-encapsulated ego. 
And sadhana comprises uh, yoga. From the root yug, which means to join. And so from that, in Latin, we get yungari, to join. And in English, junction. And also yoke. And junction is also the word union, you see. All this derives from the Sanskrit root. Yoga. A yoke is also a discipline. When you yoke oxen, that is a kind of a discipline. Now, strictly speaking, in the very strictest sense, yoga means the state of union. The state in which the individual self, uh, what is called uh, the jivatman, Jivatman is approximately translatable as ego. Jivatman finds that it is ultimately Atman, which equals Brahman, the Supreme Self. So yoga is the state, the strictest meaning of yoga is the state of union, and a yogi means one who has realized that union. But we find that the word is not normally used in that way, in that strict sense. Yoga in the normal way of use means the practice of meditation whereby one comes into the state of union and the yogi means one who is a traveler, a seeker, who is on the way to that point. But again, strictly speaking, there is no method to arrive at the place where you are. And no amount of searching will uncover the self. Because all searching implies the absence of the self the big self, the self with a capital S. So that to seek it is to thrust it away. And to practice a discipline to attain it is to postpone realizing. There is a famous Zen story told of a monk who was sitting in meditation and the master came along and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm meditating to become a Buddha whereupon the master picked up a brick that was lying nearby and started polishing it, rubbing it. And the monk said, what are you doing? He said, I am rubbing this brick to make it a mirror. He said, by no amount of rubbing could you ever make a brick into a mirror. The master replied, by no amount of zazen could you become a Buddha. Zazen means sitting meditation. Uh, they react very badly to this story in modern-day Japan. <laughs> anyway, what is important, you see, quite radically here, supposing that I say to you, each one of you is really the great self.
you know, the Brahman. And you say, well, uh, all you've said up till now makes me fairly sympathetic to this intellectually. But I don't really feel it. What must I do to feel it really? My answer to you is this. You ask me that question because you don't want to feel it really. You're frightened of it. And therefore what you're going to do is you're going to get a method of practice so that you can put it off. So that I can say, well, I can be a long time on the way getting this thing. And uh, then maybe I'll be worthy of it after I have suffered enough. See, because we are brought up in a social scheme whereby we have to deserve what we get. And the price that one pays for all good things is suffering. But all of that is precisely postponement. Because one is afraid, here and now, to see it. If you had the nerve, you know, real nerve, you would see it right away. Only that would be, you know, when one feels you, 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 you shouldn't have nerve like that. Why, that would be awful. That would be, that, 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 that wouldn't do at all. Because after all, I'm supposed to be poor little me. And uh, I'm not really much of a muchness. And I'm playing the role of being poor little me. And therefore, in order to be something great, like a Buddha or a uh, Jivan Mukta, one liberated in this life, I ought to suffer for it. So you can suffer for it. There are all kinds of ways invented for you to do this. And you can discipline yourself, and you can gain control of your mind, and you can uh, do all sorts of extraordinary things. I mean, you can drink water in through your rectum and uh, <laughs> do the most fantastic things. But that's just like being able to run the hundred yards in nine seconds or uh, push a peanut up Mount Tamalpais with your nose <laughs> or any other kind of accomplishment you want to engage in. There's absolutely nothing to do with the realization of the self. The realization of the self fundamentally depends on coming off it. You know, the sort of, when we say to people who put on some kind of an act, we say, oh, come off it. And some people can come off it. They laugh and say they suddenly realize, you know, they were making fools of themselves, and they laugh at themselves and they come off it. So in exactly the same way, the guru, the teacher, is trying to make you come off it. Now, if he finds he can't make you come off it, he's going to put you through all these exercises so that you, at the last time, when you've got enough discipline and enough suffering and enough frustration, you'll give it all up and realize you were there for the beginning and there was nothing to realize. But the guru is very clever. He says, all right, if this is the way you have to go, this is the way you have to go. You asked for it. You came to me, I didn't invite you, you see, the guru says. You came to me and I said, I want to learn yoga. Well, he said, uh, yoga is union. You, you're tattvamasi, you know, you're that. Well, now you say, I'm sorry, I don't understand that because I only get it intellectually, I don't feel it. Oh, he says, you're one of those. 
<laughs> so I see, I've got to satisfy you. The customer is always right. No, I've got to give you all this work to do because you can't see directly that this is so. But he's looking at you in a funny way, you see. The, uh, the guru is always saying to you, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What's your game? Imagine, for example, a father confessor. And you feel terribly guilty that you've committed murders and robberies and adulteries and fornications and all kinds of arson and injury to people and financial shenanigans. And you go to this man and say, I am a terrible sinner. Oh, he says, really? He said, I have murdered somebody. He says, how many times? <laughs> and uh, you think, oh, good Lord. This man doesn't realize how awful I am. And you recite all these things. He's perfectly calm. And uh, then you say to him, well, uh, you don't seem to be very shocked. He well, said, you haven't confessed any serious sins. <laughs> he said, what do you mean by a serious sin? Well, he said, uh, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I, uh, I just feel wrong. I just feel there's something in the basis of me that feels, that tells me that I am not what I ought to be. Uh, could it be that I'm spiritually proud, that I'm egocentric? He says, no, that's not it's very usual. This is quite ordinary sin. Uh, but he says, you, you, you are guilty of something, something really terrible. And uh, what could that be? Well, I have no idea. Now he says, come on, come on, go deeper. What is the real sin you've committed? And you think, what, me? I, little me, could do something worse than murder, than worse than spiritual pride? Just little me? I mean, I'm a reasonably well-intentioned person. What could that be? And he looks at you in a funny way. He says, you know. You know, it's a kind of a Kafka-esque situation where you're accused of a crime that's not specified. And, uh, and yet the, the accuser says, you jolly well know what you've done. Of course, we can't mention it. <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's like the, 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 those laws that... Uh, are on the books in the state of California and several other states where people are accused of the abominable crime against nature. Nobody knows what it is. I mean, it, it can't be mentioned. It's too dreadful to be talked about. So this guy does the same thing, but it's in a different dimension. You've done it. Hmm? Now, what, what did you do? See, the real crime is that you won't admit you're God. That's false modesty. <laughs> so the guru challenges you see he challenges you if you raise the question he doesn't go out and preach in the streets and say come on everybody you ought to be converted he sits down under a tree and waits and people start coming around and they offer him propositions he answers back and he challenges you in any way that he thinks is appropriate to your situation.
Now, if you've got a thin shell and your mask is easily dispatched with, he simply uses a, what we might call an easy method. He says, listen, Shiva, come off it. Don't pretend you're this guy here. I know who you are. And the guy sort of twinkles a bit and says, um, well, I guess you're right. <laughs> but the people aren't like that. They have very thick shells. And so he has to invent ways of cracking them. So here is how it goes. To understand yoga, you need to get hold of a good translation of Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra. Uh, I don't know which is the best translation. There are so many of them. It says it starts out, now yoga is explained. Mm -hmm. First verse. And the commentators say now has a special meaning because it follows from something else that you're supposed to know beforehand. That you're supposed to be, in other words, a civilized human being before you start out on yoga. We don't teach yoga to baboons. And so you're supposed to have been disciplined in artha, karma, and dharma. In politics, sensuality, and dharma, justice. And then you can start yoga. Then the next verse is, yogas chitta briti niroda, which means yoga is the cessation of revolutions of the mind. In other words, uh, you can interpret that at many levels. Chitta meaning consciousness, like a pool, like water, like a reflecting pool. If there are waves on that, it doesn't reflect, it breaks up all the reflections. So stop the waves on the mind and it will reflect reality clearly. Get a perfectly calm mind. That's one meaning of it. Or another meaning of it is stop thinking. Eliminate all contents from the mind, all thoughts, all feelings, all sensations, everything. How will you do that? Well, it goes on to say you do it by certain steps. First of all, pranayama, which means the control of the breath. Pratyahara, which means preliminary concentration. Tarana, a more intense form of concentration. Dhyana, which is the same. Dhyana is Sanskrit for Zen. And that means profound union between subject and object. And finally, samadhi, which is uh, way out. Now, what's happening here? Control your mind, first of all, by breathing. Breathing is a very strange thing because breathing can be viewed both as an involuntary and as a voluntary action. You can feel I breathe, and yet you can feel it breathes me. 
and they have all sorts of fancy breathing ways in yoga. They are very amusing to practice because you can get very high on them. So they set you at these tricks. And of course, if you are bright, you may begin to realize some things at that point. If you are not very bright, then you'll have to go on. And so next they really get to work on concentration. Concentrate the mind on one point. Now this can be an absolutely fascinating undertaking. I suggest that uh, you try it this way if you want to make experiments. Select a, a highlight on some bright, uh, some polished surface, copper or glass or something, where there's a little tiny reflection, say of a candle or an electric light bulb. Look at it and put your eyes out of focus so that the bright spot appears to be fuzzy. A fuzzy circle. Now look very carefully at the design in the fuzzy circle and see if you can make it out. There is a definite pattern of blur and you can have a wonderful time looking at that. <clears throat> then go back, get your eyes into focus and look at intense light. And you can go into it and into it and into it, like you know you're falling down a funnel, and at the end of that funnel is this intense light. And go down, go in, 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 in. It's the most thrilling experience. Then suddenly the guru wakes you up and says, "What are you doing that for?" Well, because I want realization. Why? Because we live in a world of, uh, if we identify ourselves with the ego, we get into trouble, we suffer, we, we're in a mess. He says, you afraid of that? Yes. So then, all that you're doing to practice yoga is based on fear. You're just escaping, you're running away. How do you think you can get realization through fear? Now, there's one to think about. So you think, well, now I've got to go on with my yoga practice, my concentrations, my exercises, but not for a fearful motive. And you know that guru, you know, he's watching you, and he's a very, very sensitive man, and he knows when you're doing, you know, always knows what your motive is. So he puts you onto the kick of getting a pure motive. And uh, that means very deep control of the emotions. I mustn't have impure thoughts. All right, so you go along and you manage to repress as many impure thoughts as possible, and then one day he asks you, why are you repressing these thoughts? What's your motive for trying to have a pure mind? And you find out that you had an impure motive for trying to have a pure mind that you did it for the same old reason you started out the thing in the beginning, because you were afraid, because you wanted to play, get one up on the universe. And so, uh, 
eventually you find out, you see, that your mind is what is called in Sanskrit uh, mudra, mudra, which means crazy. Because it can only go in vicious circles. Everything it does to get out of a trap puts it more securely in the trap. Every step in the direction of liberation is a new tie-up. So that you started, you know, with molasses in one hand and feathers in the other. That was the original situation of man. The guru made you put them together, see, like that, and said, now pick the feathers off. <laughs> and the more it is, the more of a mess the whole thing gets. So you get involved and involved and involved by this process. And he, in the meantime, you see, has been telling you, yes, you made a little attainment today, but it was only the eighth stage and there are 64 altogether. And you've got to get to that 64th stage. And he knows how to spin it out and uh, drag it all out because you are ever hopeful that you'll get that thing, just as you might win a prize or win a special job or a great distinction and be somebody. That's the motivation all along, only it's very spiritual here. It's not for worldly recognition. You want to be recognized by the gods and the angels. But it's the same story on a higher level. So he keeps holding out these baits. And uh, as long as the pupil falls for them, he, he holds out more baits. Until after a while, the pupil gets the realization that what he's doing is running faster and faster in a squirrel cage. That he's making an enormous amount of progress and getting nowhere. Like in Alice Through the Looking Glass, when the queen says, here, you have to have, run faster and faster to stay where you are. And so he impresses this upon you by these methods very thoroughly. And at last you find out that you, as an ego, as what you ordinarily call your mind, are a mess. That you, you just can't do this thing. You can't do it by any of the means that have been held out to you. You can concentrate, yes, you've acquired a considerable power of concentration by doing all this. But you find you're doing it for the wrong reason. And there's no way of doing it for the right reason. See, Krishnamurti does this. He's a very, very clever guru. Krishnamurti says to people, now look, there is nothing you can do to be liberated because all your efforts in the direction of liberation are phony. They are based on your desire to boost and continue your ego, and that will never lead to liberation. All you can do, he says, is to be aware of yourself as you are, without judgment. See what is. But then, if you can do that, you have no further problem. But if you try to do it, 
you're in the same mess all over again. Gurdjieff played the same game in a different way. He said, the most important thing is self-remembering. Always at every moment be aware of what you're doing. Watch yourself constantly and never, never be absent-minded. So all day, when you know you pick up the piece of paper, you realize, I am picking up this piece of paper. And I'm opening it inside and so on. And uh, I know I'm doing it this way, so I'm not asleep. Ordinary people, you know, pick up a piece of paper. <laughs> In this way, we are really picking up the piece of paper. And <laughs> so all these people are doing this, you know, watching all the time. Now, where do they land up? I've told this story millions of times, really. Excuse me, but it's, it's very important. When they teach you in uh, Japanese Zen how to f use a sword, the first thing that the teacher says to the student is, now, you, you, if you're going to be a good soldier, you've got to be alert constantly. Because you never know where the attack's going to come from. Now, you know what happens to you when you try to be on the alert. You think about being alert, and then you're a hopeless prey to the enemy. Because you're not, you're not alert. You're thinking about being alert. You must be simply awake and relaxed. And then all your nerve ends are working, and wherever the attack comes from, you're ready. They liken this to a barrel of water. The water is just sitting there in the barrel. But the minute you make a hole in the barrel, the water immediately is ready to come out of that hole. So in the same way, the mind, when it is in the proper state, is ready to respond in any direction from which the attack may come. So this man is no longer alert in the sense of taut and anxious. Which way is it going to go? See? He's just sitting there, like a cat sits there. And the minute anything happens, it's right there. Because it didn't have to overcome any set in a direction opposite to that from which the attack comes. If you are set for the attack to come from there, and it comes from here, you have to pull back from there and go there, but that's too late. So you sit in the middle. And you don't expect the attack from any particular direction. So in the same way, all this applies to yoga. You can be watchful, you can be concentrated, you can be alert. But all that will ever teach you is what not to do how not to use the mind. Because it'll get you into deeper and deeper and deeper binds. You have to let it happen. Just like you have to let yourself go to sleep. You can't try to go to sleep. You have to let yourself digest your food. <laughs>
you can't try to digest it. And so in the same way, you have to let yourself wake up. Become liberated. And when you find out, you see, that there isn't any way of forcing it, that, for most people, is the only way of getting them to stop forcing it. Because they won't believe when you tell them in the first instance you've got to do this without forcing it. They'll say, well, that it won't work, it won't happen. Because I'm very unevolved, I'm just an ordinary human being, I'm just poor little me. And if I don't force it, nothing will happen. I people who think that if they uh, don't struggle and strain, they won't have a bowel movement or uh, whatever it is. They think they've got to do that work in order to make it happen. In other words, all that is based on lack of faith, not trusting life. And to get people to trust life who don't trust it, you have to trick them. They won't jump into the water, so you have to throw them in. And if they are very unwilling to be thrown in, they're going to take diving lessons, you see, in which they're going to go all through, they're going to read books about diving, they're going to do all the preliminary exercises for diving, and they're going to stand on the edge of the diving board and inquire whether there's the right posture until somebody comes up his side and kicks them in the butt. <laughs> and they're in the water. <laughs> and it's also with this. It really is. So, now the most amazing gamesmanship goes on in the whole domain of yoga and spiritual practice. You would be astounded. So, I mean, one of the games in all this is to find a little flaw in you, see? Everybody has a place where they can be jiggled a bit. Something they're a bit ashamed of, and so they think, does this person really know my secret? He's not saying anything because he's polite, but does he really see through me and know that somewhere are the awful awfuls and that I'm a little bit upsettable? This is all part of religious competition. If you go to the Roman Catholics, and uh, you've studied, uh, you've been psychoanalyzed, you see. They'll say, well, that's fine, but um, of course it's not nearly enough. I mean, that's uh, all very well so far as it goes. But, or if you're a Roman Catholic and you go to a Buddhist uh, outfit that's on a missionary basis, they'll say, yes, uh, of course, through your Catholicism, you've learned some of the basic virtues, but of course, Catholicism doesn't go anywhere near the heart of things. Is it doesn't have an elaborate system of meditation like we have. Then you go over to uh, the Hindu school and they say, yes, the Buddhists uh, go to a certain point. They do attain a very, very high stage of realization, but uh, there is nevertheless something higher than that, which they don't quite get. And you'll find this all round the world. Everybody claiming to have that little special extra essence which the others don't have. Now, why are they doing that? Are they all frauds? Are they all, all out to get you into their society? Sometimes, yes. But sometimes they're trying to see whether you fall for this, testing you out. This is upaya 
skillful method. And if you become falling for that little extra special thing that's just supposed to be around the corner, no? then they've got you. Or rather, you've got yourself in a mix. And you have to work at that and work at that and work at that until you find out that you were being made a monkey of. But you were being made a monkey of because you could be made a monkey of. You hadn't really arrived where you are. You didn't have the nerve to be you. That is to say, to be the self. And so you had always to feel that there was something beyond that. The stage higher. See? So that's why, for example, masonry is such a success. It has 33 degrees. <laughs> and you know, you can go up that ladder and get higher and higher status. The more degrees, the merrier. There have been things that have vented hundreds of degrees. And they're an immense success. Because you can postpone it longer and longer, like Achilles overtaking the tortoise. Uh, he doesn't overtake it in the problem because we keep dividing and dividing the space between Achilles and the tortoise as he approaches the tortoise. What delays Achilles overtaking the tortoise is not Achilles, but our calculations about how he approaches it. We make the calculations more and more complicated as he gets nearer and nearer to the tortoise. It's only the calculations that put it off. Achilles, in fact, runs right by. So in the same way, you can calculate yourself out of liberation. You can put it off indefinitely by inventing new degrees and new stages. But actually, when you get it, you don't get it. You uh, suddenly see it. It happens instantly. It happens instantly whether you put in 30 years practice or whether you put in three minutes. It's the same. It suddenly it dawns on you that that's the way things are. Tatvamasi. Medieval society in the West, comparable to Hindu society, allowed people to check out of the game. It, it, it revered and encouraged hermits, monks, nuns, our various types of discipline. There's this difference, you see, for the West and India. You couldn't join the Brahmana caste, the priest caste, from some other caste. But in the European caste system, by becoming a priest or a cleric of any kind, you see, a cleric means simply a literate person. You could familiarize with any other caste once you're in that one. And so it was a wonderful way of rising in society. You could, from being a serf, go to being a priest, to being an archbishop and consort with the nobility. It was the only way open to cross castes, you see. And because they were the literate people, 
It was through literacy and through universities founded by clerics that our caste system began to break. And we got the idea of choosing your own vocation and not simply following what your parents did. Now I want to make an observation here about checking out of the game. This is not encouraged in contemporary society. Because the Catholic Church and the, say, the Episcopalian Church are very powerful minorities, they can still support monasteries and even hermits. But you can't be one on your own without great difficulty. Firstly, because you're a poor consumer. See, around here, there are, we have a number of hermits. There's a guy out there building that boat, and he's essentially a non-joiner, a poor consumer. And uh, the community, uh, they live a lot along here. And they're mostly, they're not um, working class people. They are people who dropped out of college because they saw it was stupid. And they're that sort of people. We would call them perhaps beatniks. Uh, but you see, the city doesn't like it because they aren't owning the right sort of cars and therefore the local car salesman isn't doing business through them. Uh, they don't have lawns and so nobody can sell them lawn mowers. <laughs> they hardly uh, use dishwashers, appliances of that kind. They don't need them. And also they wear blue jeans and uh, things like that and so the local dress shops feel a bit put out having these people around, and they, have very, they live very simply. Well, they, you, you mustn't do that. You've got to live in a complicated way. You've got to have the, the kind of car, you know, that identifies you as a person of substance and status and all that. So there's a great problem here in our society. Now, why is there this problem? There's always a very inconsiderable minority of these non-joiners or people who check out of the game. But you will find that insecure societies are the most intolerant of those who are non-joiners. They are so unsure of the validity of their game rules that they say, everyone must play. Now that's a double bind. You can't say to a person, you must play, because what you're saying is, you are required to do something which will be acceptable only if you do it voluntarily. <laughs> you see? So everyone must play is the rule in the United States. And it's the rule in almost all Republican governments. I mean Republican in the sense of uh, de Democratic. <laughs> because they're very uneasy. Because everybody's responsible. You mean you may try not to be and avoid it and say, oh, let the senators take care of it or the president. But theoretically, everyone's responsible. Now, that's terrifying. See, it's all like when you know what's right. There is an aristocracy, there is the clergy, and they know what should be done, and they're used to ruling, you see. But now it's, it's in your hands. You say, well, what are, what are we going to do? Well, I think this way, and you think that way, and he thinks the other way. 
And so we're all unsettled. And therefore, we become more and more conformist. Individualism, rugged individualism, always leads to conformism because people get scared. And so they herd together and it compounded with industrial society, mass production, etc. They all wear the same clothes and they're sensible clothes that don't show the dirt too much. And uh, we get duller and drabber and uh, with the exception of the Californian Revolution. Uh, <laughs> so, it, what, the reason for this is, in a way, that democracy as we have tried it started out on the wrong foot. You see, in the scriptures, in the Christian scriptures, it says everybody is equal in the sight of God. Now that's a mystical utterance. That means that from the standpoint of God, all people are divine and are playing their true function. And that is something that is true on a certain plane of consciousness. But come down a step and try to apply the mystical insight in the practical affairs of everyday life, and what do you get? You get a parody of mysticism. You get the idea, not that everybody is equal in the sight of God, but that all people are equally inferior. And that's why all bureaucracies are rude, why the police are rude, and why you are made to wait in lines and uh, are uh, obstreperous income tax individuals and all, all that sort of person. <coughs> because everybody's a crook. Everybody's equally inferior. See, that becomes the parody of democracy. And that kind of society, watch out for it. It turns in a quick click into fascism because of its terror of the outsider. Now, a free and easy society loves outsiders. In fact, it's a little bad for the outsider's integrity because he becomes a uh, holy man, see? And uh, people make uh, salams and uh, give him food and uh, all that. They really take care of the outsider because they know that man is doing for us what we haven't got the guts to do. That outsider who lives up there in the mountain is at the highest peak of human evolution. His consciousness is one with the divine. And great, just there is someone like that around. It makes you feel a little better. He is realized. He knows what it's all about. And so we need a number of those people. Even though they don't join our game, they tell us, you see, what you're doing is only a game. It's okay, I'm not going to condemn you, but it is only a game, and we up on that mountaintop are watching you. We love you. We have compassion for you. And, uh, but excuse, please, we aren't going to join. <laughs> so that gives the community great strength because it tells the government in no uncertain terms that there's something more than government. That's why wise kings kept not only priests but court fools. The court fool is much more effective than the priest to remind the king that after all he's human. And uh, you know how in Richard II where the fool is called the antic the king says 
within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his watch. And there the antic sits, scoffing at his state and grinning at his pomp, allowing him a little time to monarchize, be feared and kill with looks. And then at last comes death, and with a pin bores through his castle wall, and farewell, king. See, always this reminder of the priest or of the antic to the royalty, to the government. You are going to die. You are mortal. Don't give yourself airs and graces as if you were a god. As king, you are only a representative of God. And there is a force, there are domains uh, way, way beyond yours and way, way higher. But it's very difficult for a Republican government to realize that, because it's insecure. And therefore, in our present world, you cannot abandon nationality without the greatest difficulty. People who try to abandon nationality get constantly deported from one place to another. You must belong to this thing, as Thoreau put it. However far into the forests you may go, men will pursue you and compel you to belong to their desperate company of odd fellows. <laughs> <laughs>